This is episode 13 of Transform with Yayati with the founder of the world's largest networking organization, BNI, Dr. Iwan Meisner. Welcome to Transform with Yayati. My name is Yayati Desai and I'm going to be your host for this show. I'm a coach and a speaker. I love coaching and helping people. My mission in life is to transform lives. Each week, I bring an inspiring person or message to transform your life and help you live the life of your dreams. Dr. Iwan Meisner is the founder and chief visionary officer of BNI, the world's largest business networking organization. Founded in 1985, the organization now has over 9,400 chapters throughout every populated continent of the world. Last year alone, BNI generated almost 12.3 million referrals, resulting in $16.7 billion worth of business for its members. Called the father of modern networking by CNN and one of the top networking experts by Forbes, Dr. Meisner is considered to be one of the world's leading experts on business networking and has been a keynote speaker for major corporations and associations throughout the world. He's been featured in LA Times, Wall Street Journal, and New York Times as well as numerous TV and radio shows including CNN, the BBC, and the Today Show on NBC. Dr. Meisner's PhD is from the University of South California. He is a New York Times best-selling author who's written 24 books, including one of his latest books, Who's in Your Room? He's also a columnist for TheEntrepreneur.com and has been a university professor as well as a member of the Board of Trustees for the University of Laverne. Among his many awards, he has been named Humanitarian of the Year by the Red Cross and was recently the recipient of John C. Maxwell Leadership Award. He is also proud to be the co-founder of BNI Charitable Foundation. He and his wife Elizabeth are now empty nesters with three adult children. Oh, and in his spare time, he is also an amateur magician and a black belt in karate. Now, I couldn't be more excited to welcome Dr. Iwan Meisner on my show, Transform with Yayati. So without further ado, let's go straight into the recording with Dr. Iwan Meisner. Dr. Iwan, thank you so much for agreeing to be on my show. Welcome to Transform with Yayati. My pleasure. Well, uh, Definitely, you are someone who needs no introduction. You're founder of BNI, but I'd like to begin with uh, the idea of how you founded BNI, and rather rather than the how, I'd like to know why did you establish this organization? What's your why behind this? Yeah, well, that's a great place to start. Um, so, before I started BNI, and for those people who don't know, BNI is a referral organization. We have 9,500 groups that meet in person uh, all around the world. Now, right now, this interview is being done during the COVID. I like to call it, uh, rather than a lockdown, I like to call it the great pause, that we're yes. all sort of taking a pause. Um, they meet in person. Right now, they're meeting online. But uh, when this is over, they will go back to some variation of meeting in person. And, um, and, and you know, we, we've been around now for 35 years. The reason I started, started it was that I went to many networking groups and I went to some that were, this is before I started BNI, that I felt were just 
mercenary. It was all about sell, sell, sell. And mm -hmm. I would leave those meetings. I, at that time, I was a management consultant. My doctoral degrees in organizational behavior. And I, I would go to uh, these networking meetings that everyone was trying to sell to me. I felt like I was being slimed. I needed to go home and get a shower. And I hated those groups. And then I went to these other groups that were totally social. It was happy hour and hors d'oeuvres and nobody was doing business. And those had no value to me at all. And what I wanted was a group that focused on business but wasn't mercenary and a group that um, was relational but wasn't totally social. Hmm. And I wanted to blend those two together and the, the philosophy, the glue that would hold it together in my mind was this concept of giver's gain. This idea that if I help you, you'll help me, we'll all do better as a result of it. And that was really my why. I, I, and, and I only wanted to, I just tried to form one group, just one. Hmm to help my friends and for my friends to help me. And it, um, it kind of grew <laughs> 9,500 groups now worldwide. Amazing. Did you ever think when you began that BNI would grow to such a huge scale? Well, not in the very, very beginning because I was just looking for referrals for my business and I wanted to help my, my friends. But soon after, yes, um, you know, at the end of the, every year for many, many years, um, I have taken time off before the new year to reflect, hmm. to look to the future. Where do I want to be in a few years? How did my plan last year play out? And in 1985, when I started BNI, I started in January of 85. By December of 85, um, I, I sat down and I, and I said, what, you know, what just happened? Because we opened 20 groups and I didn't, it wasn't my plan. I, it wasn't my plan at all. And, and it was then that it hit me that we don't teach this in colleges and universities, that people uh, need to know how to network, but they don't know how to network. And that there needed to be an organized, structured system that was based on relationship building and that we had to teach people to do that. And it was at that point, that was really the tipping point for me after that first year that I realized that this could be a very, very large organization and that it could really help hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And so it was, it was about, uh, you know, 11 months after I started BNI that it hit me just how big this could be. Beautiful. So you mentioned that every year during the end of the year, you pause and reflect. So can you walk us through that process? What exactly do you do and what other entrepreneurs could do from your process and how they could learn so that they could create the future that they want and not live life by default? Yeah. So, you know, over time, it, it changes over time. Um, I'm in a different position now in the way I reflect and the, how I'm looking at it than I was then. So let's start with, you know, new businesses that are hungry you have got to spend a lot of time there. Um, you have got to be really thinking about who you are, what, what, your, what your personal and professional mission mm. and vision. You, you need to spend a lot of time thinking about those things. You need to spend time thinking about your core values, personally and professionally. What are the values of your business? And then you need to start thinking about where do you want to be uh, at the end of the year? Where do you want to be in five years? 
then you got to pull that crystal ball out and look at where you want to be in 10 years. Hmm. And I know that's really difficult, but I think that kind of long-term vision making helps guide. You know, I never quite ended up exactly in the spot where I thought I would be, but I wasn't far off. You know, you take twists and turns. People think that success is a straight line. Hmm. You know, you go from here to there. No, not like that. Success goes like this, Mm. you know, and then, but if you have a vision as to where you want to go, you can get, you can get there. It's just somewhat circuitous. And so um, I really, especially when I was younger, would spend a lot of time thinking about where I want to be then. And here's the important part. You have to reverse engineer it. And, and, And I would do that in December. I would reverse engineer. So this is where I want to be at the end of, of the next year and in five years. And so then uh, particularly for the next year, I reverse engineered it. So if I want to be at this point by um, December, where am I going to be in November? Where am I going to be in October? Where am I going to be in September and August? And then I would reverse it back so that I knew where I wanted to be by the end of January. That was important because what tends to happen is that people set these goals hmm. and, and, you know, they've got this paper and they've got their goals on it. They set it down and it's now April and they go, Oh, Hey, how, I wonder how I'm doing with my goals. And I go, oh, wow. <laughs> I'm nowhere near where I thought I would be. Well, that's too late. You, you have to be looking at it on a regular basis. Today, I look at my numbers on a daily basis, I, I could tell you exactly how many members BNI has. Uh, as of this morning, we had about 271,526 members. Wow. I get a daily report on exactly how many members, exactly how many chapters we have worldwide. And it's hard to do that when you're really, really small, but you've got to, you should know your numbers on a weekly basis, certainly on a monthly basis. And that's the kind of stuff that went through my head hmm. and the kinds of things that I did. Um, I mean, here's, here's one of the things I did. I don't want to go too far on a tangent with you, but I, I set a five to 10 year plan on my organization chart. It was really shooting for like five years, maybe seven years was my target. Hmm. Um, now I did this, you know, in 1985 when I had two part-time people working for me. It was actually, I did that in 86, two part-time people. That was it. Between the two of them, they added up to one full-time employee plus myself. Right. And I created an organization chart with 15 different positions. And I put my name or one of the two people's name in the positions that they were already doing. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're a small business, everybody does everything. And right. so, you know, there I was, Ivan Meisner, founder, CEO, Ivan Meisner, vice president of marketing, mm-hmm. Ivan Meisner, uh, complaint department, Ivan Meisner, janitor. I, I seriously, I had janitor in there and that was me. So I had all, all these, I was in like 12 positions and my two employees were in four. And, and my goal was as I was able to hire people to, to take that sheet of paper and scratch my name out mm. and put in the name of the person I hired to do that. And it took me five years to hit that. Now, at the end of five years, I realized there were positions I hadn't thought of. 
And so I was still in more than one box, but I was out of all of the boxes that I created the vision. And that's where I'm saying where you set this goal and you shoot for it. And, and you may not get exactly where you are, but you're close. And that's so incredibly important. That's the kind of stuff I would think about mm. at the end of the year. Today, it's a little more big picture than, you know, th those kinds of logistics. But you got to get very granular in the early days of your mm. business. Mm. <clears throat> Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your process. So one, th one question which comes in my mind is, how do you deal with the doubts, the fears, and the concerns that come up while you're doing that and also while you're in action? Yeah. So I struggled with that early in my career. Uh, I talked to a friend of mine uh, who <clears throat> I said to him, you know, what, I'm really concerned because the decisions I make affect um, uh, quite a few employees. I mean, at that time, I probably had <clears throat> probably had fifteen or twenty employees, maybe more, and um, and of course, many many members. And so, the decisions I made would affect hundreds, if not thousands, of people. Hmm. And he said to me, he said, he gave me really good advice. He said, um, "Don't worry about making mistakes. You will. <laughs> it's inevitable." The key is to figure out as quickly as possible that that was a mistake. And then you got to own up to it. You got to say, yeah, that was a mistake publicly. Mm -hmm. I mean, you got to tell people, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. I should have gone, I should have gone this direction. He said, um, you know, own up to it and fix it as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Now, I would add one other thing to it. Always, he didn't say this, but um, I've learned this over time. Always be true to your values. So if you're true to your values and you make decisions based on the information you have in front of you, don't worry about making mistakes because you'll make them. It's inevitable. You, you may have all the information that you can gather, but it's not all the information that exists. You don't know all the intervening variables that are going to take mm. place. So if you realize that going that, that direction isn't working, you got to figure it out quickly. Uh, and, and then, you know, let everyone know, okay, that was probably not the right direction to go. Let's go this way instead. And, and then get everybody on board to go that direction. So uh, I, I think if you're living your values, if I think people have regrets when they don't live their values. Hmm. So if you're living your values, you just have to recognize that you're going to make mistakes, fix it as soon as possible and move on. And that's what I've tried to do. Beautiful. I had this question uh, written down about values and you've already mentioned values in the first 15 minutes of our interview. So I'd like to directly go to that. And that is how do we identify what our personal core values are? And yeah. could you take us through the process? And I'd also like you to talk about your latest book, which is who's in the room. And yeah. it's a really intriguing uh, concept. I read through some of the sample chapter and also the video that you've put up. And I'd like to know a little bit more about that as well. Well, I think people who live their values are happier. Mm. Um, they're certainly more contented with who they are as a person when you live your values. Um, I think what happens is the people in business, they think about what their business core values are. But when you say to an individual, what are your personal core values? It's like looking at deer in a headlights. They're like, uh, I mean, if I were to say to somebody, give me your top seven core values. It, they're like, um, what? What are your top seven personal core values? 
and they're stunned. And you know, they, they hem and they haw, I've done it. They've hemmed and they haw and they're like, well, honesty. Oh, great. Okay, that's one, give me six more. And they're clueless. I think that's a huge mistake. If you don't know your personal core values, hmm. then you, you don't know what kinds of decisions to make. And, and so um, start with your professional core values if that's easier. What are the core values of your business? And, and I'll talk about personal core values in the book in a minute, but um, one of the ways to determine core values in a business, and I've never seen anybody else write about this, I wrote about it in a blog, is you start with the processes in your business that work, that are successful. You observe those processes, and you, from those processes, you create uh, systems that become the organizational traditions. Hmm. The traditions are the things we tell stories about. Well, when I started BNI, we found out that if you did this, it didn't work. But if you did that, it did work. And those become the organizational traditions. Hmm. Traditions become the core values. And core values create the culture. So I have many people say to me, how do you create a great culture in, the orga in an organization? It begins by observing processes, creating systems. Systems create traditions. Traditions create core values. Core values create culture. And as long as those, all of those are healthy systems and processes and traditions, then you create an organization with an amazing culture. I would argue that the personal core values have, it's very similar. And so um, it's not the same, but it's similar. And we talk about the importance of creating values in who's in your room, the right. book. And, and here's a concept of who's in your room, which I think is, is incredibly powerful. Imagine that you live your life in one room and that one room has only one door. And that one door is an enter only door. So that when people come into your room or into your life, they're there forever. You can never get them out. Now, luckily, this is a metaphor, but if this were real, would you be more selective about the people that you've let into your life? Absolutely. Yeah, that's what everyone says. Hmm. Well, our argument is, then why aren't we? Because we believe it is more than a metaphor. One of the people we interviewed was Dr. Daniel Amen, who's a neuroscientist and uh, psychiatrist. We asked him about relationships with other people and, and memories. And he said, when you have a relationship, a, a personal or professional relationship with someone, um, when they're in your life, their fingerprints are all over your brain. Mm. Their you will remember the things that they have done mm. forever. And so our argument then is it's more than a metaphor because they will, you may, you may be able to get them out of your life. People have said to me, yeah, yeah, but I've got those people out of my life. Mm. So here's, here's what we say to those people. Think of someone. Now I want you to think of someone okay. that you got out of your life that was in your life, but they were caustic. They were difficult. It didn't, it was not a good fit. You weren't happy with them in your life. Now I'm not going to make you name one of them, <laughs> but do you have someone in your mind? Yes. Okay. If you're watching this video, I want you to do the same thing. I want you to think of somebody. Now, I want you to think of why you wanted them out. What was it they did to you that made you want them out of your life? 
Can you think uh, of why? You don't have to even share why, but can you think of why? Yes. All right, so here's the deal. If they're still in your head, they're still in your room. Mm. They will impact your life for the rest of your life. You will always or you will often think of that experience when you're in a similar experience, you'll think back to that experience and it will impact you one way or another for the rest of your life. It could be positive. It could be negative, mm. but they are still in your room because, you know, people say, well, now I got them out of my room. No, they're, they're always in your room. Here's why the room begins here and ends here. Mm. It is your mind. And so the whole concept of the book is you have to be more selective about the people that you have into, in your room, in your life. And then you have to figure out how to deal with the ones that you've let in before you understood this concept. Exactly. And then how do you create the life of your dreams? Mm. That is the book in, in a, you know, three minutes or less. And it's, um, it's a short read. It's really quick. You can get through it in just a couple of hours. But it's very, I wish, I wish somebody else had written that book mm. when I was 17. Oh, wow. And I read it because although I've had a great life, I think I would have made even better choices throughout my life had I understood the concept of the room. And, mm. and it's all based on your values. You have to get good with your values and know what they are before you can decide who's the right person or the wrong person to have in your life. Mm. Well, this concept, now that I've heard it from you directly, it's exciting as well as scary. Exciting yeah. because now I, I have the choice of who to allow in. But what about the stuff that I already have within my room? How do I deal with it? Yeah. How do I remove the unnecessary? Yeah. So there's a number of things. One is um, somebody may be in your room, but their baggage doesn't have to be. Mm. You understand what I mean by that? They, they, they may be in your life, but their baggage has to stay out. And there are ways of um, dealing with that. For example, one of my co-authors, uh, Rick Sapio, his mother, uh, she passed away a number of years ago, but he tells the story of when she was alive, she was very caustic and he understood why. She had a very difficult life and a um, lot, a lot of problems. And, and he, he understood that mentally, hmm. but emotionally it was very difficult dealing with her because she was very toxic with people. And she spoke very negatively about people, particularly his brothers and sisters. He assumed that she talked that way about him to, to his brothers and sisters. And, um, but he would talk to her every, every Sunday, he'd give her a call and talk to her. <clears throat> and he always hung up just distraught because she was so negative. And one day he decided, look, her baggage doesn't have to be in my, in my room. And, and so he said to her, Mom, I'll call you next week, same time. But I can't handle this negativity that you've got and these horrible things that you're saying. And so um, when you go that direction from here on out, uh, I'm going to say to you, Mom, um, it was good talking to you. I love you very much. I'll talk to you next week. Bye. I'm going to cut you off and say that to you. Mm. And she was like, whatever. And so the next week, it was like a minute into the conversation and she's launching off on one of his brothers and sisters. And, and he says, mom, uh, I love you very much. I'll talk to you next week. See ya. Bye. And hung up. 
Wow. And then he called next week. And within, you know, it was maybe 15 minutes, she started launching off. And he said, hey, mom, um, got to run. I love you very much. I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Hung up. He said he did it three weeks in a row. Mm. After that, he never had to do it again. He said, I had the best conversations I've ever had with my mother. The rest of my mother's life, I talked to her every week. We had a mature adult conversation. It wasn't all wine and roses and wonderful conversations. She had challenges and we talked about those, but it was all from a mature perspective, not a toxic uh, perspective. And it was really the best two years I ever had with my mother. And he said, that's an example of someone can be in your room, but their baggage has to stay out. And there are many other examples that we give throughout the book uh, on, on, on something like that. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That's really helpful. So the next question which I have is, uh, what inspires you to do what you do now? Well, I think it's very much the same as what it was in the early days of of BNI, and even when I was a management consultant, um, was to make a difference in in someone's life. Um, Over the years, it's, you know, I've evolved my thinking to explain this a little bit better. We all have people in our life who we can tell stories about, Mm. uh, who changed our life. So they're in our story. Yes. So that when I talk about, well, for example, when we were talking about making mistakes, I had somebody that gave me advice. He's in my story. Mm. I've told that many, many times. And so depending on what the topic is, I have many people who've been in my life who are in my story. But to me, the, the, real, the real difference one can make in, in this world is not who's, who's in our story, but whose story are we in? Are we in? Oh, wow. Beautiful. Yeah. That's, that's the big difference that you can make in life. And so for me, it's about being in someone's story. It's about uh, making a difference in other people's lives. And, and, you know, whether you're literally in their story or not is irrelevant. It's about making a difference in someone's life so that whether they share it with people or not, you're in their story. You've helped them in some way. Hmm. And to me, that's, I think that's what has um, motivated me throughout my career. And uh, in the role that I have, my, my role is to inspire people to be their best, uh, to, to be successful. Uh, I learned many, many years ago that I can't make someone successful. I can't make you successful. I can't make the viewers of this successful. Hmm. That's completely up to them. But I can ignite a spark. I can light a fire in somebody that helps them be successful themselves. I can't motivate you. I can't motivate anyone. They have to motivate themselves. But there's a chance of me lighting that fire that gets them to motivate themselves. From my perspective, it's been, you know, to build their business, to help them in business through networking, through referral marketing, which nobody taught before. So that's, that's 
the, that's the way I've achieved. That's the mechanism to achieve my vision. Mm. Um, everybody has their own mechanism and their own vision. Beautiful. So can, can you walk us through the secrets of networking and especially during these times as as you've mentioned in one of your blog that it's even more important to network right now and you have a small clipping on your YouTube channel as well. But if you can just briefly talk us through the secrets of networking. Well, I think there's two main things that one needs to consider. One is um, mindset and the other skill set. Hmm. And they're both important. And when people start talking about networking, they generally launch into skill set hmm. or here are the things you have to do. You got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this. Well, that's fine. And the skill set is very important. But if you don't have the mindset right, the skill set's not going to work. Hmm. So let's start with um, the foundation of everything I teach in terms of mindset. And that's something I call the VCP process. Visibility, credibility, profitability. Yes. VCP. If you don't have that down, nothing else is going to help you. And so um, the way that works is that you first have to be visible in the community. People have to know who you are and what you do. Hmm. Then you have to move towards, over time, credibility, where people know who you are, they know what you do, and they know you're good at it. And that takes a lot of time before you can establish credibility. And once you've done that, then you can move to profitability, where people know who you are, they know what you do, they know you're good at it, and they're willing to refer business to you. And they do refer business to you. And that, that's a process. It's not a formula. It's not V plus C equals P. It's a process. You go from visibility to credibility to profitability. What tends to happen is that people try to jump over that. They're at a fourth stage, which I haven't mentioned, which is invisibility. You don't even know them. And they're like, oh, hey, maybe you could refer people to me. You know, they jump over visibility. They jump over credibility. They want to get right to profitability. And you have no idea who they are. I... I um, saw this firsthand when I did a presentation years ago in London and there were like 900 people in the audience and I asked them, how many of you are here today? Raise your hands. If you're hoping to possibly, you know, maybe just possibly sell something. Hmm. And it was an all day affair. I was the keynote speaker. 900 people raised their hands. I said, great. Second question. How many of you are here today hoping to, you know, maybe possibly buy something? No one raised their hands. <laughs> Not one single person. This is what I call the networking disconnect. Hmm. People show up at networking events wanting to sell and nobody's there to buy. Right. And so if you go to networking events to sell, you're going for the wrong reason. Hmm. So people say to me, well, you're the networking expert. Why, why else go? You go to work your way through the VCP process. People you don't know, you want to create visibility with. People you do know and have credibility with, you want to go deeper so that you can move the relationship to profitability. And people that you meet that you're at profitability with, you want to have conversations that help maintain that relationship. And so um, that's the first step. That's the foundation. So that now you can talk about skill set, but you have to talk about skill set within the context of the right mindset. And if you have that right mindset, then you understand. In a nutshell, Networking is more about farming than it is about hunting. Mm. It's about cultivating relationships with other business professionals. Right. Well, I had a question around that. How do you reach out to people who are apparently more successful than you? How do you network with them? Yeah. 
Well, it's a great question. I've done a lot of material. I have a video on um, on YouTube, uh, if, on the Ivan Meisner channel. Go to Ivan Meisner. You can find a, a, a YouTube video that I did called Networking Up. Hmm. You can also find it if you go to my blog, IvanMeisner.com, and just type in Networking Up. Okay. And I, I the video is up there as well. Um, so there's a handful of things that you want to do. Um, one is, and this is counterintuitive, do not sell to them. People meet someone who is very successful and they think, this is my one and only opportunity. Mm. Um, it never hurts to ask. I hate that phrase because it does hurt to mm. ask. Yeah. When you meet somebody where you're networking up and you go into sales mode, it hurts to ask because everybody and their mother is doing that to this person. Right. Really successful people have individuals where every time someone meets them, they're trying to sell to them. Hmm. And if you want to be part of the crowd, do that. Because I'm here to tell you, it, it won't work and you may think it'll work, but it won't work because you're like everybody else trying to sell to them. And so what do you do? What you do is find a way to help them. Hmm. It can be a small way, but find a way to help them. And that's one of the ways to stay connected with somebody very successful is if you're able to help them. I'll give you a, a real example. Now I've done this twice. I've had a chance to meet uh, Sir Richard Branson on many occasions. And um, I remember the, the, the second time I was on Necker Island, which is his private island, I really wanted to do a video with him to put on my blog. But I didn't want to go on up and say, hey, Richard, would you do a video with me, please? You know, right. I, just, I, didn't want to, I didn't want to be that guy. So I went to the island and figured out what, what's he working on right now? What's important to him? And at that time, it was um, the B team. I was there just a few months ago, and it was his concept called circles. And so both times I said, hey, tell me about the B team. What is that? And he lit up. You know, he went on talking about it. And then last time, just a few months ago, I said, tell me about this, your circles concept, which is in one of his books, uh, his recent books on, uh, uh, I think it was Finding Your Virginity, is what the book is called, for Virgin, mm. uh, The Virgin Companies. And, and, and so he lit up again. And I said to him, how can I help you get the word out on your book or on the concept of the B team? What can I do for you? And I remember the first time I said that to him, he said, well, you've got this really large network. You know, can you put the word out to them? And I said, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, would you like to do a video talking about that? Hmm. And he said, yeah, that'd be great. And then and here is the hard part. I did that. I was on the island for a week. I did that on the second day. I waited and didn't say anything for another four days. And it was like the fifth or sixth day on the island. He said to me, hey, do you still want to do that video? And I said, yes, I, I do. That'd be great. So that I wasn't pushing him. It was something he was willing to do. Mm. I didn't want to do something he didn't want to do. I wanted to genuinely, genuinely do something that would be a benefit to him. 
I mean, not a big benefit. It's not going to make or break his business. He's a billionaire no matter what I do. Mm. But a little thing so that we make a connection. And that connection was not me asking him for something, but asking him how I can help him with something. And I think that's a much better way to make an impression when you're trying to network up mm. than asking them for something. Um, and, and I have a lot of other things that I recommend, but that's probably the most important thing is find a way to help them. Even if it's a minor way, find a way to help them. Mm. I think that's a beautiful uh, distinction that you've created because yes, you're right. Most of the people that are meeting him or her, they are doing the same thing and you need to stand out. Amazing. I've seen it. I've seen it where, you know, people walk up to him and the first thing they do is try and sell him. They pitch him mm. on something. And if you want to make sure not to spend time with a person like that, meet them and pitch them. <laughs> because then that's when they get their team around. And say, Excuse me. No, but he's a little busy right now. And you don't get close anymore. And okay. so you don't want to do that. Mm. Thank you. The next question which I have is, if you had the opportunity to include three books in the school curriculums across the world, which would those books be and why? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think one of the first books that I would recommend is The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. The E-Myth, it stands for The Entrepreneurial Myth. Mm -hmm. And I read that book um, when I started BNI in the mid eighties and it absolutely changed my, my, uh, focus on business. And one of the things he talks about is working on the business, not in, in the business and really vision making for creating the business. The idea that of the 15, um, positions, the org organization chart that I talked about, mm. um, indirectly came from me reading that book. By the way, if, if anyone watching this does that, and over the course of five years, you, you know, you scratch out the name of somebody and you, or you scratch out your name and put in your own name. Keep that, keep that document because I, I wish I'd have kept it. Hmm. Because what happened is, it, you know, at the end of five years or so, I had filled it all. And I was like, yeah, I did it. I threw that out and created a new one. If I had kept that, it would be framed on, on the wall. Yes. Today. It would be framed on my wall. So keep it. Don't do what I did and throw it out. I was so excited. I made another one. <laughs> And, and so um, you want to hang on to that. But The E-Myth by Michael Gerber um, is, I think, a, a very, very good book. Uh, mm. uh, here's a simple one. It, you know, a lot of, most people don't have a degree in business. But here's a very simple business book from years ago that I highly recommend to people. And um, the book is, is um, The One Minute Manager by Ken Blanchard. It's such a simple book. But even if you don't have any degree in business, if you take those simple ideas in the one minute manager and apply them as a business owner or as a, as a supervisor, you will substantially increase your skills as a manager. So I recommend that book. And I think the third book I would recommend is success principles. Now I'm assuming you don't want any of my books. So I'm going to give you three other books. Um, success principles by uh, Jack Canfield. And Jack has become a very, very good friend of mine over the years. Um, in the second edition of Success Principles, he, he included a chapter that I wrote. Uh, but the book is an excellent book, and I'd highly recommend it for any successful business person. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. And I'd like to take a moment right now to acknowledge and be grateful to Jack Canfield and Patty Aubrey. It's because of them that I got connected to you. So all thanks to them. And Jack has yeah. also recently come up with another version called the Success Principles Workbook, which he recently yes. launched. So people who are listening to this can definitely check that out as well, because it's a gem. It's beautiful. It, it is. I did a podcast with Jack um, about uh, two months ago, and we talked about the workbook, which was coming out. And uh, I, I do highly recommend the book. I highly recommend the workbook. The beauty of the workbook is that it helps you put to work the principles that he talks about mm. uh, in his book. You know, it's one thing to read a book. It's another thing to apply the principles. Absolutely. And uh, that's really what the workbook is about is applying the principles. So yeah, that's a good point. I'm glad you mentioned it. Thank you. Uh, now I'd like to talk to you about your habits or some of the top habits that you feel have contributed to your success and the success people that you meet. What are the common themes and the habits that you observe in all of them? Well, I think one of the common uh, habits and themes is, is setting goals. People, you know, it's funny. I, I listen to some experts and they say, forget about goals. It's this. Well, I think they're wrong. I think it's, you got to set goals, call it whatever you want, goals, objectives, whatever it is. You got to say, you cannot hit a target you're not aiming at. Mm. So you got to create a target. You got to aim at it. And I think that's um, very, very important in business. Um, here's another one that I, almost no one talks about. You want to be successful in business? Do six things a thousand times, not a thousand things, six times. Mm. that's so important. And I see so many business people doing a thousand things six times. They're constantly chasing bright, shiny objects. Oh, let's try this. That's, oh, wait, no, let's go try this. And they bounce around from one thing to another. And by the way, it doesn't have to be six. It could be five. It could be seven. It doesn't matter. But it's a handful of things that you do over and over and over again, consistently mm. over time. And I get it for entrepreneurs. Sometimes that's difficult. Because, you know, they're, they're idea people. But the truth is, if you want to scale a business, you have got to do six things a thousand times. And then hire people to do the stuff you don't like doing mm. as soon as possible. But in the meantime, you know, sometimes you got to do what you got to do to get to do what you want to do. And there were stuff I did for years that I didn't like to do, like, like accounting. I didn't, I didn't like accounting, but I kept the books for the first several years at BNI because there was nobody else. I couldn't afford somebody to do it. And then I found somebody who was excited. That was one of the things I talked about in Who's in Your Room is that you have to work in your flame and not your wax. When you're in your flame, you're on fire. You're excited. You love what you do. You can see it in the way you act. People can see it in the way you act. They can hear it in your voice. When you're working in your at wax, it just takes all your energy away. Mm. You know, you just don't like doing it. And people can see it in the way you behave and they can see it in the way you, you they can hear it in the way you speak. And so I worked in my wax for a long time in different things mm. until I was able to hire somebody who my wax was their flame. So the bookkeeper was the first person that I hired that was my, that was my wax. Right. And I remember she was with me for a short period of time and she came with, she came up to me and she said, Ivan, I was able to balance the books. We were five pennies off, five cents off. And it took me a couple hours, but I balanced it. And I congratulated her. I said, well done. Well, I told a, a friend of mine 
that. He said, are you serious? Didn't you reprimand her? I said, why would I reprimand her? He said, well, she spent two hours to find five cents. I said, heck no, I didn't reprimand her. I congratulated her. He said, why would you do that? I said, here's why. Because what, what would happen if it was $50 mm. instead of five cents? What would happen if it was $500? She wouldn't go home at night. <laughs> you know, she would stay there until she figured it out. Me, if it were 50 bucks, I'd go, hey, close enough. <laughs> because it's not my flame. So uh, you gotta work in your flame, not in your wax. These are the things that I think uh, really successful people either intuitively or, or just very clearly know and understand. And you also talked about the mindset. So if you can share a couple of your own personal mindset or personal philosophies through which you operate in the world, the way you do things, what are some of those? What are some of your personal uh, philosophies? Yeah, well, I think the, the, the really principal core value that I brought to BNI and that um, I do my best to practice as well as this philosophy of giver's gain. Mm. This idea that if I help other people, they'll help me. Yes. It, it's all about supporting and working with each other. I, that is without a doubt, I think my principal core value uh, as, as an individual and as, as a business professional, I think relationships are an important um, core value of mine. Building relationships it's the reason why I didn't like going to networking events and everybody was just selling to each other. I knew how to sell. I used to train sales forces how to cold call. I know how to cold call. Hmm. I just hated it and came to the realization that I don't want to ever do it for the, again for the rest of my life. And that, that I could teach people how not to have to do that either. You know, how to build their business in other ways. And so to me, it's about building relationships. I think lifelong learning, these are, these are core values that I've incorporated into my business hmm. because these are many of the core values uh, of BNI. Yes. Uh, the idea of lifelong learning, that you're constantly improving. If you're not constantly improving, people are going to take, they're, they're going to exceed your products or services and business. You're, they're going to do better than you. And so it, it, it's, it's always a matter of being better than you were yesterday and being better than you were last year. And that if you're always focused on being better, that, that I think you're headed in the right direction. These are the things that uh, I think have personally driven me in mm. my career and have been implemented within the BNI program. Excellent, thank you. So what, are, what I'm curious about is what are you curious about right now and what are you learning in your life at this point of time? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think one of the biggest things that influenced me over the last few years has been um, health because I, I know you interviewed uh, my wife Elizabeth and yes. um, I you know I was very much a, um, a Western medicine kind of guy uh, for for most of my life until I, I had been diagnosed with cancer and when I was diagnosed with cancer um, you know my direction was to to go the Western medicine route and uh, I, I was told by my doctor I had six months to um, decide what kind of surgery or treatment that I want. I had prostate cancer. And, and I really had no more than six months to make this decision. So I had a little time, but mm. I had to make the decision. And it was my wife who, who nudged me towards uh, some holistic medicine. And the only reason I did it 
was I felt like, okay, well, one of the, one of the pieces was improving my diet and eating better. And so I figured, look, while I figure out what kind of surgery I want, I'll go all in on the holistic medicine mm. so that I'm in a healthier place for when I had to pick the kind of surgery that I needed to do. And what happened was over that six months, I went into remission, completely into remission. Actually, at the end of six months, I was on my way to remission and the doctor called me in and you know, looked at my scans and he was like, what are you doing? And I told him and it was all holistic stuff, changing the way I ate. And he's like, yeah, it can't be that. He said, all right, you don't, let's wait 30 days, come back in 30 days. And I came back in 30 days and it was even better. And I came back in 30 days and it was even better. And at the end of nine months, he said, I don't, I don't understand what you're doing, but you're in remission. Well, that was eight years ago. And I was told I had six months to get surgery. And it's been eight years. And so um, I think one of the things that I've done that I would have never imagined is co-written two books on health, which, you know, just was not in my paradigm many, many years ago. And so that's, um, you know, something reasonably, uh, reasonably recent. I think uh, another thing that I'm really working on is I'm, I'm working, actually working on a book um, called Garage to Global. Mm-hmm. How do you take your business out of your home mm. and have it become global, which I did. However, I didn't do this, a lot of the second half of it. I mean, I took the company global. But it was, it was still being run like a mom and pop operation, even though we were global. Hmm. I owned 100%. I was running the business. Uh, and it was still, I was still doing some things on a handshake. And, and it, it, it reached the point where it really had to become more global-like. I hate to say the word corporate because that, that's negative, has negative connotations. Hmm. But there had to be changes. And so I brought in partners into the company and my my CEO is um, one of the senior partners and, and, and he's helped us really truly make it a global enterprise, not just on paper, but operate like a global enterprise. And so one of the things that I'm working on is, is recognizing those differences so that we can put it into a book hmm. where I can talk about how do you, how you as the entrepreneur, how do you start a business and grow it? But then once you get it to this point, if you still wanna be part of the business, how do you make it truly a global enterprise? And, uh, and those are the things that I'm working on now. Hmm. Well, specifically about health, do you have certain practices from the Eastern medicine or something like that, which you practice on a daily basis, which has helped you to improve your health? Yeah. So what I eat now is extremely important. Uh, you know, in, in Western medicine, doctors take the Hippocratic oath from Hippocrates. Um, but what a lot of medical practitioners in Western medicine, and don't understand is that Hippocrates also said, let food be your medicine and medicine your food. And they just slough that off. Like, yeah, that sounds good, but it doesn't make a difference. And I think they're wrong. Um, I mean, from my own personal experience, I know that that food has been a medicine for me. Um, But also in terms of Eastern sort of um, philosophy, uh, I have started to meditate. I don't do it as often as Elizabeth. She's, she's <laughs> really, really good at that. But um, I think meditation, centering yourself, finding that place where you're at ease and at, 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 uh, at one 
with yourself is really, really important. And it's not something I talk about a lot in business because, you know, most business people don't quite, a lot of business people don't get it, certainly in North America. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think it's very important to, to find, I'll tell you what I have done for, for many, many years um, is at least one day a week, I have what I call a mental health day mm-hmm. where I just, I don't work. Um, I just um, do the things I enjoy. I stay at home. I don't, I don't go out. I don't go out to dinner. I don't go out anywhere. I stay at home. I'm with the family, with my wife or with my kids. Maybe I'll go out on the boat, you know, here in, I live in, in Austin. Uh, but it's, it's my day to regenerate. And I've done that for many, many years. Amazing. Thank you. Well, we're coming towards the end of this interview and it's been a great interview, but I'd like to ask you, is there anything that I should have asked you, but have not, and you'd like to address it? Sure. Um, let's go back to the who's in your room book, yes. which um, it's available on, on Amazon for those people who want a copy. Um, and it's also an audible. Uh, we have mm-hmm. it as an audible book. Uh, and all three of the co-authors read chapters of the book for those who, who want it on audible. Yeah, I think one of the last chapters uh, segues well with your last question. Because we, we talk about in one of the very last chapters of the book, how do you create the life of your dreams? Yes. And the question we ask is, how do you create a life of balance? And so we ask the reader, um, you know, would you like a life of balance? And, and when, I'm doing, when I'm speaking to an audience, I, I say to them, would you like to know the secret to balance? And of course, the audience always says yes. Hmm. And I say, here's the secret to balance. Forget about balance. You'll never have it. And people almost always go, oh, oh, oh I thought you were going to give me something good. Well, I think we have something good, hmm. but it's not balance. And here's why. When you think of balance, you think of scales and that your life has to be completely in this perfect balance hmm. where your business life has to be completely in balance with your personal life. Your spiritual life has to be in balance with your health. It's all got to be just completely balanced. And life is just way too complicated to have that. Life is more like a juggling act than a balancing hmm. act. And, and so I, I say to people, and this is more of an Eastern philosophy than a Western philosophy. I say, forget about balance. It's really more about harmony, creating a life of harmony. Mm. And that's more than semantics. Even the graphic for the yin and the yang are out of balance. Yes. If you separated them, mm. they're out of balance, but together they create harmony. True. And I think that if, if we strive for harmony in our life rather than balance, that we can achieve that and we can have a life that is harmonious. And we talk about in there, what are the things to create a life of balance? And there are many things and I know we're almost out of time. Let me, let me give you one that I think is the most important thing to create a life of harmony. And there are more. And well, I'm, I'm going to give you two. I'll do it quick. Sure. One is three words, be here now, hmm. wherever you are, be there. Be fully present. Don't be at home thinking about the project that you have to do at work. Don't be at work thinking about the time, the the fact that you didn't spend time with the family last night. Wherever you are, be fully present to the moment. Now, nobody's perfect at this, but the better you get at it, the more you have a life of harmony. Hmm. I'll give you a second one. You have to learn how to both let go and hold on. 
mm. which sounds contradictory, but it's not, and I'll explain why. You, the truth is in life, you cannot have it all. People who tell you you can have it all are lying to you. I know some of those people who say you can have it all, and they don't have it all. Mm. I know them. The people who talk about business success you often have multiple divorces. Mm. And, and, you know, and vice versa. And people who talk about, um, you know, having um, great success in, in love, have a business that's horrible. So they don't have that. They don't have it all. But you, so you have to pick and choose. So you have to let go of the things that don't fit your personal values and your mission. Hmm. So we come back around again, full circle to the values issue. Yes. You have to, if, it, if it's not completely congruent and resonant with your values, let them go. And then you have to hold on for dear life for those things that are resonant with your values, the things that are important to you in life. So you have to learn how to both let go and hold on. Hmm. That and a handful of other things helps to create a life of harmony versus balance. Amazing. So anyone that's interested in my material, uh, IvanMeisner.com. And of course, if you're interested in BNI, BNI.com. Um, those are some ways. And I've got tons of material. I've been writing blogs since 2007, twice a week for 13 years. So lots of free content up there on my blog. Amazing. Thank you so much. And for those of you who are looking for out how to find out your values, I think you also have some resources on your website, who's in your room book, thebook.com. Yes. Yeah. Well, if you pick up the book, there's a, a hidden we uh, website that you can get there. But the truth is you can go online and you can find mm -hmm. many um, instruments or tests to help you figure out your values. And in the book, we have a very simple uh, exercise for people to figure out their values. It's one of the first things you have to do. If you want to have a, a life of harmony, you got to know, you got to know your values. If you don't know your values, your room becomes a revolving door with people coming in and no one leaving. And you're letting people in who don't have your values and you're, you're not, you're not screening them out effectively. So yeah, you got to get good with your values. And the book does have some exercises in there for that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Iwan. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your My wisdom. Pleasure. Thank you for your graciousness and sharing so many wonderful things about business, about life, and of course, harmony between it all. So thank you so much. Thank you. Truly my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode. If you loved it, please leave a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you know someone inspiring and successful, please pass them on to me. I'd love to interview them and share their story. If you want to get coached to create the life of your dreams, connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at Yayati Desai. That is Y-A-Y-A-T-I-D-E-S-A-I. You can also connect with me on my website at yayatidesai.com. Thanks once again for listening. Until next time, do something awesome.